There was once a school teacher back in the 1800s who was known to the children in his class as Mr. Kimball. Mr. Kimball one day had the joy of sharing God's love and his gift of salvation with a shoe clerk from Boston. That shoe clerk listened intently to Mr. Kindlin and was thrilled to learn about God's love for him. And during their conversation, with the help of Mr. Kimball, that shoe clerk gave his life to Jesus Christ. The clerk's name was Dwight L. Moody. In the year 1879, Dwight L. Moody became an evangelist and was preaching in England. A young man heard Mr. Moody preach and responded and gave his life to Christ. Later, that young man became a pastor. That young pastor's name was Frederick Muir. Frederick Muir left England and moved to America. While preaching in America at uni students, there was a uni student by the name of Wilbur Chaplin. Under his ministry, listening to Frederick, Wilbur Chaplin was convicted and gave his life to Jesus Christ. Chaplin began working in the YMCA and started up some evangelical crusades for the YMCA. During this time, he employed a former baseball player to be part of the crusades. That baseball player's name was Billy Sunday. In 1934, Billy Sunday did a stint of crusades that were held in Charlotte, North Carolina. Because of these crusades, God stirred the hearts of many in Charlotte and a mini revival started to take place. Because of this mini revival, around 30 businessmen in Charlotte set aside a day that would become a day of prayer. A farmer who just happened to hear about this day of prayer offered the use of his land to the businessmen for this long day of prayer. The leader of the businessmen was Vernon Patterson, and one of his great prayers of this land was this, out of Charlotte, the Lord would raise up someone to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. After a while, Billy and the YMCA Crusades had finished in Charlotte and they moved on. The businesses met again and discussed the idea of having another evangelical meeting to take place in Charlotte, just like happened with Billy Sunday. They wanted to keep these crusades going. The kind farmer once again heard of this desire and went and told these businessmen that if you want to do these crusades, you can use my farm. The crusades did take place on his farm. This time, the fiery southern evangelist named Mordecai Ham was a guest preacher at the crusades. During these crusades, the farmer's son became a Christian. The name of that kind, generous farmer was Franklin Graham. And you guessed it. His son's name was Billy. Wow. Wow, wow, and wow. Little things in the time of history can truly produce enormous change and direction. All these little events come together not only change the farmer's son, they change the world. So much so this farmer's son's name is now forever known and forever recorded in history. Today, we're looking at a moment in time which set up the bench, which also will change the life of a person forever. So much so that her name is now known and forever recorded in history. These moments not only changed Ruth, though, these moments that we are looking at today have changed the world. We are continuing and today in chapter three of Ruth. Last week, we looked at the first five verses, a sermon I titled, Oh, What a Plan. Naomi's plan was to help Ruth find security, honour, protection and contentment in the home of a loving husband. 
Her matchmaking plan was this. Ruth was to go to the property of Boaz at night, but wait in hiding. Then after he finally lies down and falls asleep on his threshing floor, she was to go to him, uncover his feet, lay down there and wait to see what he says and then do that. Though the final outcome of the plan won't be known until we, as we finish today, Naomi's well-orchestrated plan will lead to a vow, a blessing and a promise for Boaz whatever the end result comes out as. It will be a favourable one for her. So Naomi's plan of finding security, honour and protection and contentment in the home of a loving husband is well on the way to success. From this, we come to our first verse of today that Gary read out before. That's why I've titled this sermon, The Proposal at Midnight, or Let the Plan Begin. I pray that God would speak and challenge and encourage us through his word today and his glorious name be praised. Even though Naomi's plan was bold, Naomi would never ask Ruth to do something that she felt was inappropriate. Ruth knew this and she felt no obligation through love to follow the instructions as they were given. The Bible records Ruth's obedience in the words that... She went down to the freshing floor and did everything according to their mother-in-law instructed her to do. Once she arrived, she did everything Naomi told her to do. She didn't get cold feet. There in the dark, watching him, she did exactly what her mother-in-law told her. I know about you or me, I know about me, but chances are when I got down there, I don't know whether I would have gone and followed it to the T because this was quite a bizarre plan. However, her love for Naomi led her to childlike obedience in, in how she conducted herself. And so when you put both the plan together and her actions, we see that there's a mutual love for each other is what is driving this whole situation and their decisions. Naomi is acting out of love in setting up this plan because of her love for Ruth. Ruth is following those plans because of her love for Naomi. Once Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, once he went to sleep, Ruth approached quietly. This is exactly what Naomi had specified. She was not to make herself known until after Boaz had eaten and had drunk. This is part of the plan, works wholly and solely on understanding people. Normally, most people would be more inclined to matter after having first eaten. You notice this in the book of Esther, before requesting on especially important matters of, from the king of Persia, Esther first invited him to a banquet, knowing that this would make the chances of him granting her request more favourably. People tend to act more impulsively and don't think clearly before a meal. Why? Because they're hungry. As the saying goes, no one should ever go shopping before eating a meal unless they have a very full wallet. Or as the new stickers had state, you're not you when you're hungry. Naomi, who had already had a husband and two children, understood these things well enough to know them intimately. So her direction to Ruth is to wait till after Boaz had finished eating and drinking. Ruth in turn trusted Naomi's direction and followed them. And it worked because we're told that after eating and drinking, Boaz was in good spirits. That word literally translates as cheerful. Boaz was cheerful. It signifies something good, well, 
glad, pleasing. After a long day at work, it was well fed, he was well fed and he was well filled. Now his mood was good and cheerful. So he laid down on the soft bed of stalks which had been separated from the grain and he probably went to sleep quite quickly. But his sleep didn't last long. Ruth approached quietly um, to Boaz. The Hebrew word here indicates a secrecy or a mystery. In other words, she crept in, maybe on tippy toes, in order not to disturb his sleep. Once she arrived, she uncovered his feet and lay down. As I shared last week, I used to be confused about these verses. In fact, for me, it sounded like Ruth slept with Boaz on that threshing floor. But I was completely wrong. These verses paint the picture of Ruth proposing, just like you and I would do on getting down on one knee. The uncovering of feet was a way to propose. Didn't happen much because most marriages were arranged. But she was asking him to obey the law of Kingsman Redeemer and to take her as his wife. Ruth did what she did was a complete submission to the law and also to Boaz. Ruth is offering herself to the person who has the right to redeem her. She is doing this under the provisions of the law, under the provisions of the culture and under the provisions of the land. In these actions, neither Ruth nor Naomi who recommended them have done anything wrong or even mildly inappropriate. So there Boaz in his deeply sweet sleep, unaware of anything that's going on. But at the same point there in the middle of the night, Ruth quietly approaches him and uncovers his feet. Now, like most people who have someone come to them when they're asleep, we're told that Boaz was woken and startled. I've mentioned a few times since starting this series, our translations often lack the impact of what the author really means, or they don't give us what the author is really trying to say. Well, this is another such term. The word used in most translations is he woke up startled, but this is not the word. The word is kadar. This word tells us Boaz wasn't feeling just a merely startled. The meaning of this word is one who is truly afraid. He woke up truly afraid. I remember I grew up in Broken Hill and uh, our back door used to be just a thin board thing and it had one of those tiny little latches on it. And I remember I was lying in bed one night and don't know what time it was, so I know it was dark, and I hear this bang. Someone had kicked in our back door. And then I heard them walking around our house, like in Broken Hill, we had miners' cottages, so they're all on wooden stakes and everything like that, and they squeaked like nothing. And I'm lying on the top bunk, and I curled up like a ball when I got as close to the wall as I possibly could, as I heard this person walking around my house. I remember my brother, who was on the bottom bunk, and he kept rolling and tossing and turning. I'm thinking, stop moving, you idiot, stop moving. And I heard this guy walking around and when he left, I heard him go back out the back door and I thought, now's my time to get help. And I went, Mom, Mom, I couldn't speak. I was actually petrified. That night, I definitely woke with Kader. This word Kader is used for the first time in scripture to describe Isaac's reaction when he realised that whoever he blessed wasn't the son that he thought he was. It said, then Isaac Kader trembled exceedingly. Most commentaries say this tremble exceedingly feeling, fearful feeling, is what the author is trying to portray. 
This means once poor Boaz was truly afraid when he woke, and probably for good reason. Remember, these are the days of the judges. Israel was full of political and social instability. During this time, it wasn't unusual for gangs and thieves to come and steal the hard-earned grain that the farmer had worked for. Remember, why is he sleeping on the threshing floor? He's sleeping there for one reason and one alone, to protect his grain. We read about this kind of behaviour of people coming in and beating up the farmers and stealing their grain in 1 Samuel 23. Boaz slept at the threshing floor to guard his crops against these kind of attacks. Since he was there to protect against thieves, it must have given him quite a shock to wake up and know someone was there. As he woke, it could quite have easily been a man or a group of men with an axe at his feet wanting to steal his grain. This would, of course, cause him to wake with trembling, exceeding fear. In response to Boaz's fear, we read the following, and he turned himself. This word here is a reflective, a reaction from what this means to grasp a twisting or a bending. In other words, he bent forward and grasped in unconscious state of this deep emotion. Well, thankfully for him, instead of finding a large predator or a strong-armed opponent ready to attack him at his feet, his shock and fear quickly turns. He realises it is something entirely different at his feet. He found out the visitor lying at his feet wasn't someone ready to attack, ready to steal. It was a woman. Again, our translations are lacking here. Rather than a mundane, and there it was, it should be translated, behold, a woman. Or a more modern way is, woohoo. You can understand why this woohoo word is used. Instead of finding a man or a gun, a gang at his feet, which his fear shows us that he may expect it, he came and finds something completely unexpected, a woman lying at his feet. So now he realised he's in minimal threat to his life and his grain. Woohoo! Even though at this moment he realises he's safe, I'm sure he would still be in a state of confusion. I'm not sure if you've ever had a nightmare or a dream and you wake up, it takes you a while to process where you are. Well, this would be exactly the same way. When he found out the visitor at his feet was a woman, his shock and fear quickly turned to wandering. He adjusts his mind and asks her directly, who are you? The first response brings clarity to the who, but not to the why. She says, I am Ruth, your maidservant. In essence, she's allowed him to momentarily grasp that this is the young lady that had been gleaning in his field and that she had been helping over the past few months, hoping he would connect the dots. The Ruth he had been so generous towards, that is the one that is at your feet. Following up her identification, we now get to the heart of the matter or the matter of the heart. She says, spread the corner of your garments over me since you are my guardian redeemer of our family. The word for garment here is normally translated as wing, garment, skirt, edge or something like that. The words she uses literally say this, place your skirt or wings over your maidservant. This is a traditional expression. It implies this, I am a widow, take me as your wife. Sorry. Ruth asked Boaz to spread the corner of her garment 
over her. Again, there is nothing sexual about this. To spread one's covering over a person meant to claim that person for yourself. The word garment also carries the meaning of wings. Ruth had come under the wings of Jehovah and now she was about to come under the wings of Boaz. What a beautiful picture of marriage. You know, even to this present day, when a Jew marries a woman, he throws the skirt or end of his talif over her to signify that he has taken her under his protection. In essence, the image portrays the covering of the woman is now also under the same covering that the man has. So in her words, we can see her request to him is for marriage and how she wants him to be the one who that would perform that duty. She was asking to come under his wings for him to offer her a resting place, the rite of marriage. And then she says, you are a close relative. She's offering herself to him while stating at the same time he already has the right because of the relationship he has with her. In other words, it would be as she said, me lying here under your garment demonstrates the true relationship in which we already stand. You are my kinsman redeemer, therefore I am yours if you want me. By Ruth identifying Boaz as her close relative show, this whole freshening floor incident was not inappropriate in any way. It was bold, it was risky, but it was not inappropriate. What they have done is honest, lawful and tenderly emotional. This elegant place me under your wings shows the purity, love and noble actions of Ruth. This is a father backed up. This is further backed up and acknowledged by Boaz when he speaks to her. He doesn't say, get away from me, you trashy whore. He says, the Lord bless you, my daughter. That's his response to what he's doing. The response of Boaz here testifies and vindicates Ruth's actions as being pure and noble. In this response, there is no hint of accusation or condemnation given to her. Instead, he explains that he, she is truly blessed of the Lord. This means Jehovah himself has smiled upon what she is doing. And so is Boaz smiling upon her actions. For you have shown more kindness at the end than at the beginning, he says. This term used by Boaz is like saying, Ruth, not only have you been faithful from square one, you've been faithful and have continued to grow all the way along the journey. Wow, what a great compliment. I guess you understand when times, in tough times or when times are bad or things are happening around us, people will always draw closer to one another to God during those times. However, when things become better, a change takes place. Those close connections often drop away. They go by the wayside. Because life is going well again, families become more separated because the support is no longer needed. You'll see this in time of death. When someone dies for the first two weeks, people and family members and friends will crave and cover and nurture the people. Then the funeral happens and over a period of time, the separation starts to take place. Well, Ruth is not like that. Ruth is not like that at all. When things are good, family, friends and God aren't needed as much. But according to Boaz, Ruth is the opposite. When Ruth had hard times, such as when she married into the family of Israel, when her husband died, when she was willing to forsake the gods and family of her own land and stay with Naomi. Now Boaz said this faithfulness that she's shown then 
has continued through the good times of what she's received over the past few months. Ruth's faithfulness could clearly be seen in both the good times of life and the hard times. Boaz makes mention of her faithfulness to him as well in the fact that she did not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. Apparently, there was a considerable age difference between Ruth and Boaz. Because of this, Boaz considered himself unattractive to Ruth. He thought there'd be no chance of her ever coming to him and had therefore ruled out the idea of any romance between them. In the fields of Boaz, though, there were young men whom she could have followed. There were young men who she could have ended up with. And Boaz just naturally assumed that that's what was going to happen. Instead, she devoted herself to Naomi and kept away from such possibilities. Boaz's words are given as an insurance that she has found her actions appropriate, that she can now rest easily. He won't attempt to defile her. He won't attempt to shame her by saying she came and did this. Though he has responded favourably, up to this point, he has not responded in a way that yet acknowledges that he is willing to accept her request. Nothing in his words up to this point have settled anything. Nothing in his words yet give Ruth a hint of anything. Is she closer to him being a husband or not? That's until now. Now with the next verse, there is no doubt. Even though her voice was trembling as she spoke, Boaz said, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. Here we can see how the hand of the Lord guided the events of Ruth's life. Her words, which were the desires of her heart, will be fulfilled through the meeting of Boaz at this proposal at midnight. Boaz made Naomi look brilliant in her advice to Ruth. Thy plan worked perfectly. Why? For all the people of my town, he said, know that you're a virtuous woman. There are a couple of key words in this section. Firstly, the wordly translated town means gate. For all the people at my gate know. The gate of the city was an important place. The gate represented the city itself. Those who sat at the gate were the elders and the judges of the city. Legal decisions were made at the gate for good reasons. If a person was to be praised or punished, the gate would be the perfect spot to do it because those coming in and out would see it take place. For those that you wanted to, to say this person is praiseworthy, you saw it at the gate. For those that you wanted to condemn, you put them at the gate and you shame them because people would see it. A courthouse would be a similar place for us today. Anyone who wanted to go in or leave the city would have to meet the approval of the elders and the judges at the gate. Paying attention to the many times such incidences occur in the Bible gives us a clear picture of what Boaz's words to Ruth mean. He's saying the elders and the judges of the gate have told me about you. We're all well aware of noble character, they said, on her arrival. The elders and judges of the town called the gate of my people would have seen Ruth faithfully leaving alone early in the morning with an empty basket in order to go out and glean. Then after many long hot hours, they would see her again on her return, this time with her basket full of grain. Not only that, they would have seen the grain had been threshed and widowed, so they knew that she'd done the difficult work instead of bringing it home to Naomi. Anyone attending to the gates and seeing her day by day during the harvest season would by now know that she was a model of noble character. She was a woman of hard work. 
Another interesting word in this noble character, there is no single word that we have in our English language to accurately describe it. That's because the basic meaning behind this Hebrew word includes many aspects of a person. It includes things like spring, strength, morality, good quality work, virtue, physically honourable, respectful and so on. All of these virtues are tied up in this one statement, noble character. That's what he's saying she has. This same word is used many times to describe the heroes in our Bible. It is the same word the Bible used to describe Boaz when he's first introduced to us in chapter 2, verse 1. Now this same word for noble character is used to describe Ruth. Another interesting thing is this. This word is used once again by Ruth's great-great-grandson Solomon in Proverbs 31. In that chapter, Solomon is describing what a woman of noble character looks like. He spends 21 verses describing such a woman. Many scholars make the comment when thinking what inspired him to write those words about a woman of noble character, is it possible it was the family stories about his great-great-grandmother that made him do it? We don't really know how Ruth looked, but we do know that she was a woman of godly character, noble character. This lovely and virtuous woman was an ideal match for the noble and virtuous man named Boaz. And again, we see his character come to front because he says, Ruth, I am a close relative. However, there is one closer than me. It would be wrong for me to exercise my right without first going to him and seeing if he wants to take you. Because he's a man of virtue, his own personal desires, which are perfectly evident from the story, are less important to him than being obedient to the law. Just as Ruth was a noble woman and had followed everything that Naomi said to the letter of the law, he was a man who would do exactly the same with the law and the custom of his culture and his time. Do you know, my mum used to have a saying. My mum used to have a saying and she'd say things like this. Love makes a man do things quickly. Not sure where she heard it from. Chances are she made it up herself to quote because the time she often said it was to me, my brothers or my dad when she wanted us to do something for her. Well, mum's old saying is right here. From this short conversation in the dark of the night, Boaz isn't mucking around now. He develops a plan to go and see this close relative. When's he doing it? In the morning. Maybe my mum was right. Love does make a man do things quickly. I love what Boaz is doing here. He's truly creating a win-win situation for Ruth. If this close relative says, yes, I want to exercise my right and take her as my wife, Ruth gets a husband and the rest that we looked at last week. If he says no, Ruth gets a husband because Boaz promised to fulfil it. With the plan in place, Boaz's mind would have certainly been working at 100 miles per hour and thinking over what's going to happen in the morning. He would be thinking about what should he do? What should he say when he gets to this guy? How should he approach him? But even with all this racing through his mind, he still has care for Ruth because his last thing he says to her in verse 13 is lie down with me until morning. Again, some have suggested this invitation is sexual. No way. This invitation to lie with him is all about Ruth and her protection. 
At that late hour, Boaz knows it would only be troublemakers or wild animals that would be out and about. If Ruth was to leave that threshing floor, she could be harmed. Boaz wants to keep her safe from such troubles at this late hour. There is no need for her to lose sleep. She can stay the night with him, rest quietly and not worry. That's where we end today. As I always say, so what? Well, I think we can learn a couple of things from this passage. And the first thing we learn is this. It's all about the way we approach God. Even though Jesus is our kinsman and redeemer, even though we can go to him and say, hey, the Bible promises you'll forgive, lover, never forsake me. We have, the Bible tells me that you've already died and have risen for me, so you have to take me as your child. It's there in black and white. It's in God's word. We can go to him and say that. We can go and claim that. And in a way, that's all true. But the how we approach him is so important. We need to approach God the exact same way Ruth approached Boaz. How was that? Well, last week we looked at some things. We looked at how she cleaned, anointed and changed her clothes. Today we see Ruth approach Boaz in complete submission. Remember, she's going and placing herself at his feet. Complete submission of him and the law. This is the way we should approach God. As God's children, if we want to have a living, loving relationship with him, we must come with complete submission. Submission to him and submission to his law. I said last week, knowing and obeying the will of God or living in a deep relationship with God is not like the supermarket where you can just go and pick and choose what you want. God expects us to accept all that he plans for us and expects us to submit to him completely regardless of the cost. When we live in this complete submission of our Heavenly Father, when we follow his laws and don't try to change it, we know what it means to be a Christian. We can't come to God with hidden agendas or reservation in our heart. We can't come and say, yeah, God, I'm prepared to follow you. I'm prepared to pray. I'm prepared to read my Bible every day. I'm prepared to go to church. But I was just wondering, is it okay instead of denying myself and picking up my whole cross, how about I pick up the cross and bar a little bit and um, that, that way I'm not have to worry about certain things? Or God, can I just come and follow you, but, you know, this bit about suffering for you, can, can we leave that bit out of my life? Or look, God, your love and grace, I accept that, but hey, you know, this dying for you, do I really have to do that? It doesn't work that way as Christians. Saying these things isn't coming to God with a complete submissive will to him and his law. In fact, doing this will only grieve the Holy Spirit. Ruth could have just walked up to Boaz and said, hey, let's get hitched. You're my kingsman redeemer. But she didn't. She went about her proposal the right correct way according to the kingsman's law. She went as a submissive servant, willing to do anything to come under his wings. And what was the result? In stepping out in obedience, submission and faith by placing herself at the feet of Boaz, she received a gift. In fact, she received two. She received the gift of acceptance. On that fleshing floor in the middle of the night, in her love for her, he accepted her. He even called her my daughter and pronounced a blessing on her. She also received the gift of his assurance. In the, middle, in the midnight darkness, Ruth could see the face of Boaz, but she could hear his voice, and that voice spoke lovingly to her. What are the most powerful words you've ever heard? 
Is it you've asked your wife to marry you and they've said yes? Have you ever been before a judge and you hear the words guilty or not guilty? Have you ever gone for a job and you hear the words you're successful? They're very powerful words. They're words that change our life. Well, chances are these words from Boaz are those very words. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. In these words, Boaz received Ruth and gave her assurance. Because of the submissive way Ruth approached Boaz, the promise of two gifts came out of his mouth, the gift of acceptance and the gift of assurance. Just as Boaz spoke to Ruth, here's the good bit. God speaks to us. The two promises we see Boaz make to Ruth, we see the same two promises that God makes to us. In the words of response of Boaz to Ruth, when, they, when she came submissively, we see the same response to us when we come submissively to him and get a deeper relationship. We have the gift of his acceptance. Our Heavenly Father is our Redeemer and he's seeking a closer relationship with us. We should not be afraid to draw near to him. Why? Because we have his acceptance. Do you know, one of my great favourite verses on the acceptance we have as God children is found in Hebrews 2.11. It says this, Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers and his sisters. I don't know if you have any brothers and sisters that are a bit weird and a bit out there. I do. I remember I shared this verse with my brother once when I was trying to lead him to Christ. Probably did the wrong thing. Because I said, Royce, there are times when you embarrass me to no end. <laughs> and um, people will say, is that your brother? No, no, that's not my brother. Well, I said, Royce, Jesus, if you come to Christ, Jesus would never say that to you. He would always say to you, yes, this is my brother. People say, oh, I've done something and God must be ashamed of me. And I always say to them, no, he's not. Always claim Hebrews 2.11. Jesus is not ashamed to call you his brother or his sister. You have been accepted. If we could only realise, even in a small way, the great love of the Kingsman Redeemer has for us, we would forsake everything else and enjoy his fellowship. Many people say how important it is that we share with God. We'll know that God wants to share with us. God wants us to know where he's at, what he has for us, and he wants to share it with us. He wants us to know that we're accepted. And finally, we have the gift of his assurance. Fear not was his first announcement out of Boaz's mouth to Ruth. Do you have a favourite saying? Well, for me, if you ask me what's God's favourite saying, I think the words fear not would be up there. Fear not is a word of assurance that God used over and over again to his many servants. Let me give you some. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Joshua, Ezekiel, Daniel, Joseph, Mary, the shepherds, Paul, John, and the list goes on and on. Get out of concordance and look up how many times the words fear not come up in our scripture. They're all to people who've come to God submissively. Well, do you know you can add to the list? You can put your name on that list. You and I can say with these spiritual giants, our Father gives us the same fear, not assurance, so we can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. Just like Ruth and all the others just mentioned, our assurance is to don't be afraid. 
It's not based on our feelings. It's not based on our circumstances. Ruth was in a strange, dark place. The only thing she had going for her was who she was with at that time. The only hope of, our, of, of ensuring she had was what was going to come out of his mouth. We are no different. When we're in a strange, dark place, we can take comfort in one thing. Our only hope of assurance comes from the one we are with and the words he speaks to us. It is in his words that we can rely and depend upon and nothing else. No wonder people say, how important is it to read and know the word of God? Because it is in that word of God you find the assurance. Ruth had a king's, kingsman redeemer. In fact, she had more than one. Even though she didn't know what tomorrow would bring until they went to the closer relatives, even though she had received the acceptance and assurance from Boaz, she didn't know what was, if she was going to be able to marry him. So the fulfilment of the law hadn't happened yet. Well, in a way, we are the same. We have come, submitted ourselves and believed in Jesus. We've entered his rest and come under his wings. We have received his acceptance and his assurance. However, we too must wait for the fulfilment of the law to that day when he comes and takes us as his bride. That's why that great hymn says, Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. What we have today is only a foretaste of the Lord that we're going to receive. Until that day, no matter what, let's keep trusting the Lord. There are times when the outcome or something may seem scary or overwhelming to face. It's times like these that we need to remember the story we're looking at, cling to it and trust. I, um, I've read a book by Hudson Taylor and I'll just share this quick quote. He said, there was a time of rebellion in China the workers of China Inland Mission were experiencing great suffering. The founder, James Hudson Taylor, in his late 70s, said to his missionary workers this, At this part of my life, I cannot read, I cannot think, I cannot pray, but I can trust. Trust in what? The words and promises of my God, for they have never let me down to this day. We trust the Lord that our redemption and being with him is ahead. Well, he led Hudson Taylor, he led Billy Graham, he led Ruth, and we can know this, he will continue to lead us too. This is a sure promise that we see pictured in this beautiful book of Ruth, and it is a sure promise that we see over and over again in God's superior word, our Bible. All I can say is hallelujah and amen.